Welcome to the 4A Podcast. I'm Robbie Stout. On today's show, we have the American cyclist, Keegan Swenson. Keegan's story is one of pure grit and determination. From a young age, he has been drawn to the challenge of pushing the limits of his mind and body on the bike. His persistence helped him earn junior national, under 23 national, and elite national championship titles in cross-country mountain biking. He was on track to go to the 2020 Olympics in Tokyo, but after a one-year delay due to the COVID pandemic and a couple of bad days on the bike at critical races, Keegan was not selected for the single spot available to an American. Since then, Keegan has shifted his focus from the short hour-and-a-half World Cup XCO races to endurance gravel and mountain biking. The change in disciplines has uncovered loads of potential he wasn't quite able to harness in the World Cup XCO format. Since 2020, he has set numerous fastest known times, an Everesting world record, an appearance at the Elite Road World Championships, multiple lifetime Grand Prix overall titles, and in 2023, he obliterated the Leadville 100 course record by 15 minutes, a record held since 2015 by Albin Licata. In this episode, we cover the importance of building a support team to help you achieve your goals, the importance of rest, recovery, and nutrition as an athlete, and the psychological aspects of being one of the world's greatest endurance athletes. I'm truly honored to have had the chance to interview Keegan for this podcast. So let's get on with the show. Hey, Keegan, welcome to the show. And uh, thank you so much for, for being here. I know you've been um, busy with tons of Zone 2 uh, mileage in, in Tucson. How are you doing today? Thanks for having me on. You know, stoked to, stoked to make it. And uh, yeah, it's a bit of a rainy day today here in Tucson. Unusually wet and cold, but, uh, you know, can't complain. So, yeah. Are you in just like a base phase for you or is it just like a high volume plus, you know, more um, intensity as well? Yeah, I guess it'd be like uh, a build phase, like mm-hmm. starting to add in a bit more intensity, you know, some threshold work and whatnot. So still like high volume, but also like a bit more intensity. And what would a high volume week look like for you in terms of just total time on the bike? Uh, about 30 hours. So Damn. this week would be like, it's like a, it ended up being like a 10 or 12 day block or something. Uh, but this week itself will be about 30. So. Wow. That's uh, I, I don't even know how you find time to cook and um, do podcasts like this. <laughs> yeah. Rest days. <laughs> Rest days. Yeah. The, the, so is today like a, of them. So, yeah, is today sort of a rest day? I saw that you rode the rollers this morning. Yeah, just an easy recovery ride today. Um, yeah. It was actually meant to be yesterday, but today's forecast looked pretty pretty bad. So I just switched the two days around mm-hmm. to get the good day, get the hard long day in while it was nice, and then uh, you know take it easy today while it's cold and wet. So nice. Yeah, and so I'm gonna kind of shift us from today and i want to go back and hear a little bit more about little keegan growing up in in park city because i actually don't know this part about you in terms of just i mean i I grew up in park city too and so i I do know what it was like to grow up there but i kind of want to find out just when you kind of got into biking and uh, did you do any like ski racing as a kid like a lot of other kids did yeah i mean you know like you said i grew up in park city yeah, I mean, ski raced for a long time. That was like a big, big part of my life. Uh, you know, I played a bit of soccer when I was like, you know, from a young age until kind of through middle school or what, whatnot. 
and then you know kind of picked up i always ridden bikes you know as soon as i could like you know i don't know when i started riding i would have been whenever i was yeah i'm not sure what age it was when i started riding two wheels but uh you know so i always mm-hmm. ridden bikes and you know my dad and mom were way in the mountain biking so i used to ride in the back of the tandem with my dad and uh kind of got into it that way you know like we'd take trips to like southern utah and you know i'd ride in park city and then you know i think i was maybe 11 or 12 years old when i started on like the young riders program in town which was like a, yeah. like a kind of a youth cycling organization which was quite cool and to get out and yeah ride with a few other kids that were riding bikes you know and then kind of started uh you know started racing like locally doing uh you know some of the intermountain cup series and then every now and then that you'd have like the Norba race in town. And that was like, for me, I think that's what like really got me, drew me in. Cause you know, mm-hmm. I was doing like a little, like the kids race on the grass and you know, I'd see mm-hmm. like, saw Todd Wells and like all the big dogs at the time racing. I was like, that's pretty cool. You know? And uh, from there on out, that was kind of yeah. like what I decided I wanted to do and mm-hmm. just kind of progress from there. You know, I started racing yeah. a little more regionally in Colorado and then, you know, just got, kind of more and more involved and slowly became just what I did. <laughs> yeah. And so, uh, I can really relate on, on every one of those levels. Um, so I did some ski racing as a kid. I actually was the same grade and age as, uh, Ted Ligeti. So we were growing up together. Um, and for anyone who doesn't know, he became, uh, an Olympic gold medalist for the, uh, yeah, best in the world. <laughs> the, yeah. Alpine combined. Yeah. And, and, and winning by margins that were just unheard of at his peak, like, you know, two seconds or three yeah. seconds in a, in a GS or whatever. Um, kind of like you, I, I don't know what it is in the water in park city. Maybe it's all the uh, arsenic. <laughs> right. Maybe it's um, all so bad. <laughs> yeah. But then on the uh, young riders point, um, when I was in like first grade, so I'm exactly 10 years older than you, by the way. Um, I mean, not like to the month, but to the year, basically. Because um, I think you turned 30 this year, right? Yeah, next week. So yeah, yeah, and I turned the I turned the dreaded four zero in October this year. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I'm not excited about that, but. I'm pretty sure in second or third grade, I was the first year of Young Riders. And back then, this is before Park City had its like superb trail network. And we were just a bunch of little kids all on, uh, you know, fully rigid fork and, and rear suspension or no suspension, obviously, you know, tubes, cantilever brakes. And they were taking us, you know, down the rail trail and exploring kind of near Jordanel on just double track mostly and later eventually we were heading up to like daily canyon area and um doing some of the Getting older the trails, trails up there yeah but that was that was really transformative because i think when you're like a little kid it's easy to to complain to your parents and, and not enjoy it as much or like you know my brothers used to take me or m- mostly one brother but um you know i'd always end up crying because it was like too hard or too hot or a crash and be bloody and um i think in that like group dynamic like you could compare yourself to your peers and i knew for me i was um typically a little better so it was like also confidence boosting i think um right but when did you when did you first notice that you liked to like ride hard and exert yourself 
um, I, I think more so than the kids around you. Man, I was on that Young Riders program. You know, was, there was like at the time they had what was called like the the race team or Devo team, something like mm-hmm. that. And mm-hmm. you know, there would be I don't know, there have been six of us on the program when I was on it. And, and what you know, age we started would doing, this have been? I think I was. I mean, there was like two of us that were younger. We were. I was maybe like twelve or thirteen. And there was like some kids that were also like 16. Um, so I was one of the younger ones in the program. And, you know, we started the coach, Tom, Tom Noker at the time had us doing, like we started doing some intervals, you know, so like as a group, we'd do like, like four by fours up like tour to homes, which was like this, you know, it's like this, like double track, single track climb, uh, that goes up, uh, connects the two deer valleys, you know? And so I think doing that, I, I think I like, was, I seemed like I enjoyed it more than most of the other guys did. I was like, well, this is actually like kind of fun. Like I enjoy like pushing myself and, you know, doing these efforts and we were kind of racing each other and kind of some would be on our own. You'd like do like mass start, like kind of like sprints and stuff like that. And so I think I just kind of picked up on like that. I enjoyed like pushing myself and whether it was like with a group or without, you know, and then there was also, uh, we had the, Royal Street hill climbs back then too, like Thursday evenings. They they used you to know, have like a TT series, right? Yeah. So those, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, kind of got into doing that, which was like it was perfect. It was like five p.m. after school, and I would just like, you know, finish school, go home, wolf down some food, roll up, and then like rip an effort up Royal Street because they had like an official little timer. And so I think it was like that kind of stuff that like got me to like realize like I did enjoy suffering, whether it was on my own or. <laughs> with a group so you know i started like working with uh a coach which was tom as well so he was like writing me like a training plan that i would do on my own as well as doing like the young rider stuff uh so yeah then it just kind of progressed from there i felt like and yeah i still had some friends that were like doing it so we would ride together uh, outside of the young riders program and then there'd be the group of us that would then you know do the rides that was like twice a week or whatever the training uh, actually was but and 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 how were you at like other sports like soccer or ski racing um, back then? I mean, I was pretty good. You know, like ski racing, I went to the you know the Junior Olympics. Uh, I can't remember what age I was. Maybe wow, it was fourteen I, I did or not something. Know that. Yeah, yeah. So like, I was like decent. I wasn't great. Uh, you know, like, I got finished on the podium, and you know, every, every now and then it would like win a race. But I think mm-hmm. I was like. I enjoyed it, but I definitely like found myself wishing I was like riding my bike, <laughs> wishing I was somewhere warm. And mm-hmm. at that point, like I was getting good enough at ski racing and bike racing that like you had to go somewhere in the summer to go train on skis. And mm-hmm. then bike racing, you have to leave the snow once in a while to go to training camps in the winter. So it ended up like starting to like come to a head and conflict a little bit. And I was like, well, I kind of need to like pick one mm-hmm. of these sports. And I was just better at bike racing and felt like I enjoyed it more. So went that route and I think in the end it was the the right decision. <laughs> but uh nice. Yeah. Ski racing is definitely yeah. definitely a hard road. <laughs> yeah, and I, I had no idea that you were a ski racer and and somewhat successful at that. Um I did see you once with your dad ripping down Thanes on a powder day one day. I was on the chairlift and you were you were definitely like crushing it. I was like, damn, he's a good skier. <laughs> You know what I mean? Go. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That was a surprise. I was like, yeah, wow. Like he's, 
I thought I was like, it was more than just good, you know. It was like, oh, he's like ripping it, you know. Um, yeah, I think you, I think you like launched off of one of the those like big moguls that are under the chairlift and you know, flew thirty feet or whatever. Yeah, but, it's a um, good time. I definitely kind of miss it sometimes, you know. Are you just Carry not um, doing a lot of winter sports these days, just out of um, pure training demand? Yeah, pretty much. It just gets hard to do it all. I mean, some athletes like some guys make it work, but I, I don't know. I just find I really enjoy just like kind of the grind down here in Tucson, just training and uninterrupted, mm-hmm. having to deal with whatever. Mm-hmm. Last winter, when we got the snow really early. Like I was able to go ski, uh, just to get a bunch of Nordic skiing at the top of the pass, but mm-hmm. up where where your house is, <laughs> but. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, if that doesn't happen, then it's like I'm down here in January earlier and don't really want to like travel back and forth. Like, oh, I could like you could go up and ski for a rest week or whatever. But but then it's like, oh, I kind of just enjoy like being down here. So, mm-hmm. you know, like I just kind of transitioned into like full time bike racer now. And, you know, there'll be plenty of time to ski in the future, hopefully. So, yeah, um, for sure. And I did so much of it when I was young. That was like my life. You know, I skied every day every single day when the resort mm-hmm. was open so it's like kind of got my fix of it and i still really enjoy it uh but mm-hmm. now like you know this is my job and i really enjoy the process and training so it's kind of just what i want to do and so did you train before school in the morning like in the dark under the lights was <laughs> that your era yeah well it was a bit of both sometimes we'd go up in the morning and sometimes we'd have the evening sessions it just kind of depended on mm-hmm. Uh, what was going on? I feel like it was mostly evening. Uh, here and there, we would mm-hmm. do morning, but I feel like the morning sessions were normally on the weekend, and we would just get the speed work in, and then mm-hmm. and then we would go about normal train the rest of the day because they would let us like train on like the main the main run for speed stuff. So yeah, there was some early morning stuff, uh, but most of it I felt like was evening under the lights there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I felt like I always felt like the kids who trained in the dark on on like CB's steep, you know, run. I felt like that was so hardcore because it would be so cold, you know, it's hard to see maybe and I don't know, I just always yeah. thought the kids that did that had serious kind of grit and determination. Yeah, I never did yeah. that. So. No, I agree. <laughs> yeah, it was um, I mean it was cool, you know, to, uh yeah. It definitely was kind of it was a good experience, made you made you tough. <laughs> so um, and I and I do think the the like the type of skiing you were doing and the dry land training, which um, for people who don't know this, um, but most ski racers do a ton of um, what's called dry land training, you know, all summer long, which is a lot of weights, a lot of plyometrics, a lot of abs. Like it's really actually pretty tough. I I ended up doing it as a snowboarder, and it was a serious you know ass kicker. And I think some of the coaches back then like kind of relished in, in causing us pain. <laughs> that seemed oh, for to be sure. Yeah. <laughs> and for me, that's actually the first time I kind of discovered I liked to, to push myself hard. And I think I had a little bit of a chip on my shoulder as a snowboarder at the ski dryland training. You know, they were all mm-hmm. ski racers and I'm just some half pipe snowboarder dude. But yeah. so in my mind, I was like, I need to prove that I'm as good of an athlete or better. And so I always just did, you know, tried as hard as I could to like, if we ran up a mountain or if we did, you know, intervals on the track, I yeah, just, or the, um, the shovel run or whatever. Yeah. I mean, kids, kids used run. to throw, like 
kids literally used to throw up on these on some of the these days because it was just so intense sometimes. But yeah, good old you know <laughs> dry land days. Yeah. So high school, um, you start seeing some success or a lot of success, and you won. When did you win? Win your first like junior mountain bike national championship title? Um, I've been in. I think 2010. So my first time I raced nationals was 2009, and I was mm-hmm. third place. And then I won mm-hmm. the following year in 2010, and then was second again in 2011, and then won in 12. So, and so wait, how how old were you have been the first time you won? 15. So it was like the 15, 16 15. category combined. Okay, but mm-hmm. I won out of 16, and then. The next year, I was in the under eighteen or U U nineteen category, mm-hmm. whatever it's mm-hmm. called. And then um, you graduate high school. And what was your your plan, like you know, finally graduating high school, uh, in terms of pursuing a, a cycling career? Uh, I mean, for me, it was uh, I was pretty just dead set on making it happen and being a professional bike racer at the time. Like there was a uh, thought a little bit about going to school, and I was like, no, like I. I don't really want to do that. And I didn't think I'd be able to give like enough effort in, in going to college to be able to get mm-hmm. that done and be a professional athlete. I know like that like gets definitely possible and there's a lot of athletes who do do that. But for me, I felt like it was going to be kind of one or the other. I have a hard time like splitting focus. I didn't want to like waste my time and kind of be like mediocre at both. So mm-hmm. kind of just went all in on the, the pro athlete front, you know, and kind of just found a way to make it happen. <laughs> so, so did you uh, have like sponsors, you know, immediately like graduating high school to, that could support yeah. you? Yeah, yeah. So I came out of junior and immediately got a ride with the Candale Factory Squad as a first mm-hmm. year twenty three. So you know, I was making enough money to like live on my own and whatever else. So you know, like I was based, I was based in Germany for quite a few months with Anton uh, Cooper. Mm-hmm. So we were teammates at the time, racing over there, you know, and then come back and we'd go back and live at my parents' house in Park City and was kind of bouncing back and forth a bunch, traveling, racing. Uh, you know, since Sophia was going to Fort Lewis, so I ended up spending a lot of time in Durango. Um, I ended up living there for a couple of years when I was at U23. And then when she graduated mm-hmm. college, we you know bounced on back to Utah. So And you guys, and, uh, so you met, I think you graduated high school, what, like 2012? Is that right? In 2012, yeah. And then when did you meet Sophia? Uh, that year. Actually, that oh, wow. like sp- that spring, I guess it would be. Yeah. That's wild. So you got, man, you get, you've been together for a long time. <laughs> yeah. In a, in, a, yeah. in a good way. I just, I, I, I didn't realize it was that uh, close to finishing high school. Um, yeah, it was like basically, I actually wasn't even going to school at the time. I had like gotten all my credits done and graduated early. Um, mm-hmm. so I wasn't, I just basically took the whole second semester of my senior year off just to race. Cause I knew that like that would be kind of a key year for me going into U23. Like I want to be able to train properly all winter and, you know, be ready to go in the spring. So, you know, was able to kind of hustle and get some online stuff done and was able to graduate early and which was a pre for me that worked out really well. And it was a good way to do it. I was stoked to have my parents support and be like, yeah, I'm going to gonna do this you know i'm gonna yeah pack in these credits and try and uh be done with school so and and i take it they were 
always supportive of your of your goal to to be a professional cyclist yeah yeah they were always like more than supportive i think you know and Mm -hmm. willing to help in whatever way they could and you know they weren't like pushing me too hard like i I told them i was like i don't really like feel like i'm ready to go to school or want to you know go to college Mm -hmm. and they're like Mm -hmm. yeah if you want to you know be a pro bike racer like go give it a crack and see if you can do it so well, and, and seeing your success already, I'm sure it wasn't like some huge gamble, um, you know, like you had, you had a proven track record right. already. Yeah. Like I, you know, won a bunch as a junior and I already had like this like pro contract when I was 19. So it wasn't mm-hmm. like I was like reaching for the stars or anything. It was like a pretty realistic like scenario, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, sure. At the time it wasn't like enough. It wasn't like, oh, you're making a ton of money, but it was enough to like, oh, like this i could they may give it hopefully we can make a career out of this and and i think like back to what you said about seeing some of the norba races in park city i just i think those events are super valuable for the communities that they're in um whether it's gravel racing today or whatever these big races are because these kids come out to watch and they they see these you know superstars out there just totally crushing it and that that's a huge motivator to like see your heroes in person out there smashing it. So, you know, like I said, I'm older than you. So my experience with that was in the early nineties going to Deer Valley and watching like Tinker Juarez and John Tomac, um, racing the Norba right. cups or whatever they used to be called back then. Same and, thing. Um, just another, think, another crop of like another generation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But, uh, I just, I'll never forget. Like I got, um, John Tomac, and ticker to sign my helmet like after the race or whatever and uh yeah that was like you know my favorite helmet for like way too long it was <laughs> probably cracked and <laughs> oh, yeah. falling apart yeah but, uh, it's funny i remember you know just uh you know a few months ago in bentonville i signed like probably signed a dozen kids helmets you know and i remember like having the same thing when i was in the you know cruising around the pits asking for stickers getting like things signed mm-hmm. and like so I think I, like as, as now, like I remember like how stoked I was to like be in that position. So it's like to be able to like, hopefully get a kid like as G'd as I was to like pursue bike racing, even if it's just to like, just as a hobby or whatever, I think it's, uh, it's pretty neat, you know? So those things like go a long way and it's, you know, it's cool to see other athletes like also like doing the same, like supporting it and like, um, you know, helping encourage it. So. And it's, and like I said, it's, it's, it's one big reason for a town to support the event happening because it Mm -hmm. it does have like that, that long-term kind of ripple effect on, on the younger generations. For sure. Um, And so, uh, you you graduate college, you, you make that decision to pursue the life of a professional cyclist. And I think you won U23 national championship for uh, cross country. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I won it. Uh, um, a couple of years, I didn't win it my first first go on it. Like, mm. I can't remember what year that was. And maybe 2014, I won. And who else was uh, on the podium that year? I think Russell Finsterwald was a last year U23. Howard Grotz. Uh, Carrie Werner. I don't remember who was like, who else was on in the top five that year. Um, but I remember those, those few guys were on the yeah. podium with me as well. And... And so, like Sepkus, was he racing like nationals he and stuff have. as well, or is he is he younger? Yeah, he might have been on that podium. I can't remember. There was a, I mean, I was definitely on some junior podiums with Sep. He mm-hmm. might have been on that. Maybe he was like fourth or fifth that year as well. 
Um, mm-hmm. But I know I was on, I mean, Seth and I raced together since we were like 15 years old, racing like the Mountain States Cup Colorado series. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, we had some good battles back in the day. So it's awesome. Yeah, it's been uh, yeah cool also to follow follow his journey the last I don't know, five, four or five years now since he started racing World Tour. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean he's it's, he's been amazing to watch, yeah. and obviously like a super loyal domestique, and nice to see him kind of unleashed finally. Yeah, well done, uncaged. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So I'm going to actually jump forward to. Uh, training a bit and we'll get back to your transition to the gravel racing a bit later i kind of want the audience to kind of understand um like the the volume of of riding and training you're doing right now just because i think it is really hard for them to even fathom like i think a normal person wouldn't be able to comprehend it really (laughs) so can you describe what like a week of training looks like for you right now just you know roughly yeah i mean I mean, this time of year, it's like anywhere from 20 to 30 hours, you know, um, with a few weeks, maybe being a bit bigger than that, you know, so it's normally there's like one or two rest days built in as well. So most of those hours come in the form of like, you know, between four and seven hour days normally, you know, some days you're doing like a long endurance ride with uh, various like threshold efforts like stacked within sometimes the ride might only be three hours or three and a half but you have a lot of intensity um a kind of you know mix of different efforts uh you know then saturdays down here we always have the shootout group ride which is a pretty awesome thing we have in tucson it's just uh you know it ends up being it's about 100 miles uh and there's always a huge group that does it which is really cool we have a mix of like all sorts of top level athletes, you have top level triathletes, uh, some mountain bike racers, some like young college kids racing, a handful of us like gravel athletes. I think that plays a pretty big role into like why a lot of us are down here training. The shootout is like kind of a, every, every Saturday we do it except for this Saturday, a good handful bail because of the weather. But for in general, like it's a seven 30, we're out there hammering. Uh, so yeah, that's, you know, that's a solid, solid solid day and then normally we'll stack another hard day on sunday with the big big volume or whatever so yeah normally it's like a monday is kind of an easier day or maybe a little later in the week but yeah i mean it's it does vary a lot depending on the you know as the as we get closer to the season the weeks start to get like a little more specific toward the races that are coming up like most of the time for me is spent on the the road bike or gravel bike and you know try and squeeze in a mountain bike ride here or there Uh, i actually probably ride my my uh, like the e-bike more than my regular mountain bike nowadays just because the e-bike's a great tool for any recovery days you can go out and like stay in you know proper zone one train like zone one super easy but actually like have some fun and like rip some trail and keep those skills kind of sharp for you know whatever mountain bike races we have yeah. and tucson must be nice as well because it's, it's so flat that you can have proper recovery days and and you're oh, not yeah. tempted to yeah. to kind of jam jam up some little hill or uh, or whatever. Yeah, I mean even you know like doing recovery days on the road bike here, you just go do. I got my like standard little like path loop that I do. It's like you know about mm-hmm. ninety minutes long. You can just cruise, um, no yeah. limited traffic. You can keep it super easy. So it's 
Mm-hmm. I love the train down here. I mean, the flat roads are nice, just consistent power when you're on the gas. And you can have proper easy days, and you do have a few big climbs for when you need need to climb and get those like more mm-hmm. like more intense efforts in. Yeah, I'm in Virginia right now, and it's very hilly here. Uh, there's like not any flat ground at all. Um, yeah, there's not really there's Constantly not big mountains rolling. either. But yeah, it, it's you're just it's endless one to two minute hills, you know, and yeah. it's it's so hard to not just do like basically like vo2 efforts up every single one every day <laughs> yeah just end up going hard because um, it's fun and you can go faster well, the and, yeah so i end up doing a lot of like zone one on the downhill zone four on the, the, the hills and um mm-hmm. I, I don't i have a hard time staying in, in zone two around here i keep telling myself to do more zone two i just feel like Zone two is is like the buzzword of the year this year. It seems uh, to be. Huh? Everyone, everyone's yeah. talking about it. I guess I should ask you. So, what do you see as the physiological kind of science and slash benefit of huge amounts of zone two? I mean, it just you know builds up your like aerobic capacity. I guess you get really like metabolically efficient. Um, once you get good at it, like that zone becomes like, I don't know, like a, a good baseline, you know, like I could go out and ride like zone two power for, I mean, you can almost do it indefinitely, but it takes a long time of like building that up. And then it just means that like, you know, that you can build off that and do like more intense efforts and like actually recover back at zone two instead of having to like go down to like zone one or like near nothing to actually recover from hard efforts. So I think, I mean, it just... You know, in a way, it just builds a bigger, like, more efficient motor. When you say aerobic capacity, are you saying the uh, level of intensity that you're able to ride while staying uh, aerobic without going anaerobic? You know what I mean? Yeah, I think that maybe anaerobic capacity is not quite the right word. But yeah, I mean, in a way, mm-hmm. like, you, you're like that zone two can just get like bigger and bigger, you know? So, like, some days I will have rides mm-hmm. where it's like, <clears throat> an easier zone two ride where I'm riding at the bottom of zone two. And then there's some days where I'm riding at the very top of zone two with like in and out of zone three a little bit. Um, so it's like, it's a pretty broad zone. So you, you, know, you kind of like can bounce off the top or the bottom and mm-hmm. use it different ways. But yeah. We, we do a lot of zone two, a lot of like big mm-hmm. endurance days. Um, it seems like the and- volume seems to work quite well for me. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, from what I've you know heard from, everyone talking about zone two, like they're also saying like, and that's when you're using fat is fuel. Um, right. But I feel like you have to also be using blood sugar as fuel. But so maybe when your blood sugar is tapped out or maybe your glycogen or whatever, you're you know, then converting fat. Um, does that, does it, do you think that's like legit? Yeah, I think you are. I mean, you're probably using like a mix of it, you know, like mm-hmm. ideally you're burning mm-hmm. mostly fat with like a little bit of carbohydrate or, whatever and then because if you're burning mostly fat when you're doing zone two then when you go to do like harder intense efforts then you can burn the glycogen and not have it be depleted from burning it when you're just riding zone two so i think mm-hmm. that's like kind of the goal of it i know a little bit about that kind of science but it's not i'm not fully you know mm-hmm. ingrained mm-hmm. in it as much as others or yeah. as my coach but, so but it, would you say that like that particular zone is what you've maybe increased in the last like five years or since you started gravel racing? Yeah, I think so. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's definitely more time in that zone. I mean, 
you're going to add volume. I mean, you can only do like so much threshold work and whatever else in the end, like most of your time is zone two. Like if I go ride, do like an eight hour ride, you're going to, I'm going to spend, you know, seven and a half hours in that zone. Whereas mm-hmm. like you can't, you can't go do like, it's just a different training effect, right? You can't go do like that much of zone three or zone four right. or whatever. So if mm-hmm. you're going to like mm-hmm. get volume, it has to be like zone, zone two. Yeah. And I think like for the, the amateur cyclists like me who sometimes doesn't ride very much or usually doesn't these days, like if I'm doing, let's say a 12 hour week, it doesn't feel like it. I mean, if I'm actually trying to go do like, let's say some threshold intervals and, and stuff like that, I don't really have a, like an infinite amount of time to do a lot of zone two. So it, it kind of just seems right. like it's the kind of zone you should be doing as you increase your total time. Um, I think like, you know, the tempo sweet spot zone is like pretty key. If you don't have a whole lot of time to train, like if you, you know, work nine to five and you have like an hour to ride every day and then the only time you can get long rides is on the weekend, it's like, you can't just like ride an hour of zone two. Like that's, it's not useless, mm-hmm. but it's like, you're not going to gain anything. Yeah. You know, you're better off doing right. like some right. sweet spot intervals or some tempo or like some VO2. Like you need to just get a lot more bang for your buck if you only mm-hmm. have like 90 minutes to train. But if you have that time, then zone two is quite, quite important, I think. And doesn't, and like, you know, on the weekends, if you have time, you can go, you know, you can bang out a three or four hour ride and get that time in zone two. But I think it's like, mm-hmm. you can't just ride zone two for an hour every day and expect to get better. Like, that's not, you know, it's not right, really how right. it works. It seems like the kind of like status quo for, or for training in terms of in, like volume intensity and kind of taking it more professionally has, has sort of increased over the last, I don't know, decade or so. When I was younger and living in Boulder, where there was a lot of pro teams there, um, often training, the the standard was to like meet at the coffee shop at like 10 and maybe they go do four or five hours. But uh, there there wasn't this like meeting earlier than 10 was a bit start to go into the zone of like triathletes like i feel like triathletes were always made fun of by the cyclists back then as being the ones who wake up at six and start training at seven but mm-hmm. now i'm seeing more riders including you you know starting earlier training longer so what do you think has been the shift from that like more laid back mentality to to today and, and how you train i think a big part of it probably is like gym work too uh, at least for me mm-hmm. it's like if you have if i have to ride six hours and then you know mm-hmm. come home and like still have time to fit in some gym work and like and then you know actually like hang out and have time to walk the dog and you know do some like normal life stuff like i think i don't know maybe that's part of it. maybe it's just the culture has changed a little bit i'm sure there's still mm-hmm. like a good handful of guys out there that like will still just always ride it that same time i mean don't get me wrong like i when i'm you know in the summertime like and the days are longer and it's warmer like i'll happily ride at 10 or 11 or whatever but mm-hmm. uh when i have you know stuff to do sometimes it's nice to get out early and i've also i think being in tucson down here like the shootout starts at 7 30 so like i'm kind of just on that program of like going to bed at, you know relatively early between 9 and 10 or whatever and then every day you're waking up you know at seven o'clock give or take. So you're like, well, I'm up at seven. Like I might as well get, get cracking, you know? Uh, mm-hmm. and then that way it's like, if I do have like an eight hour ride on the plan, then I can wake up at six and 
be riding by like 7.30 or 8. So I think it's it's a matter of like training volume and also like, you know, like I said, the gym work, like having it fit in multiple mm-hmm. sessions is gets difficult if you're going to ride six hours and you leave at 10, like it doesn't really leave much time to then like get your work in and like actually mm-hmm. go to bed at a reasonable time and like stretch and like do all this other stuff that is like kind of required now. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And I think Tucson and in, in Arizona in general has a little bit of a culture of early morning riding just because it's so hot in the summer. Yeah. I think it's kind of ingrained here, you know, and I, yeah, I guess, I mean, come May, like I'll be riding quite early most of the time. You know, it's like rare that I'm out the door past nine. If it's, you know, once it gets to be like that hot. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How about stuff like stretching and yoga and, and more recovery stuff like that? Do you do much of that daily or is that weekly? Yeah. I mean, stretching has been like a, I'm a big thing I've had the last I don't know, last two years or so. I've gotten like maybe longer actually, gotten more and more into like stretching and like taking care of myself. You know, for so long I think I kind of got away with it just because I was you know young and like not training quite as much. But then like you know, like you said, I'm almost 30 years old now, so getting kind of old and mm-hmm. uh, old man. <laughs> like with the training volume, like when you're training almost 30 hours a week, like your body just gets kind of beat. And like I found, I just feel a lot better. Uh, if I get in like my solid stretch every day, so, you know, I've got like a little stretching routine that I do and, you know, some like mobility stuff that I do before training now and, um, just keeps the body happy. And the more you can keep everything moving free and, um, get less injuries, the, the better, you know, the more consistent you can be training. So and in terms of, um, just food, like when you have huge days uh, let's say it's a seven hour ride or i think you said eight hours a few minutes ago um yeah like, what <laughs> uh you're you're riding so much that you're you're like riding through lunch you know you're right you're you're yeah. like riding through afternoon snack even how are you eating enough food to like get proper just nutrition in general when when half your day is on the bike yeah i mean it can be a bit tricky you know like if you get home at like 4 p.m. You generally like have lunch, then uh, like recovery mm-hmm. shake, a little lunch, whatever. Then you know you eat dinner a couple hours later. So you kind of kind of like packing a lot of your nutrition into the second half of the day. Uh, like even if you're eating a bunch on the bike, it's still. I mean, you still can't keep up. You know, like if I do like 6,000 kJ's or whatever it is for a long ride, like eat like that combined with like the like just daily amount of calories burned. It's like it's a bit of a challenge sometimes to to keep up with it. Mm-hmm. Um, what is uh, six kilojoules, kilojoules in terms of in terms of um, calories roughly? It's pretty much one to one, so it's like okay. six thousand calories. Yeah, which is like if it's like a hard six hour ride, that's pretty doable. Or if it's like a you know seven eight hour ride of like more lower zone two, then it's you know I'll be right about there. So it's like mm-hmm. kind of hard to keep up with it sometimes. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it feels and like a full time think- job. Like I'm just sick of. Yeah. eating and hydrating <laughs> just yeah obviously our our computers and our power meters and all of our data will tell us yeah you um created you know 6000 kilojoules which equates to you know 6000 calories do you think that's true like in terms of calorie burning cuz like if you're if you are also burning calories throughout the day to recover and just exist and then are do you think you are consuming let's say 6000 or 7000 calories in a day sometimes yeah 
if it's like a concentrated mm-hmm. effort if i have like back-to-back days and i try and at least like get close to like hitting that number i don't really track it like exactly you know i mean some days you just like mm-hmm. literally yeah. eat as much yeah. as you can like you're like i i gotta just have a massive bowl of rice and then you have a big uh-huh. bowl of you know cereal or whatever after uh for bed to try and like top off if you have another hard day so it's uh yeah i mean i don't really know i think sometimes i get close to it if you're doing if you're taking in like 90 to 100 grams an hour on the bike then it's like possible to kind of keep up but uh even then i don't know like exactly if you do that's what rest days are for you know try and catch back up so yeah okay that makes sense and so in terms of um sleep like you're riding earlier in the morning which means you're you know waking up early do you feel like you're getting enough sleep typically or are you, are you I mean how do you make sure that you are getting enough sleep because you probably need at least 9 or 10 hours a night to to feel normal. Yeah, I mean I I'm pretty sleep is a pretty big important. I mean it's obviously one of the most important things you can do for training. Uh mm-hmm. so I I'm always making sure that I'm getting like that like 8 to 10, you know. Uh some days like mm-hmm. the shootout days it's a little bit hard. Sometimes I'm only getting you know, like 7 and a half because like it's just hard to like physically go to bed that early unless you're like really regimented throughout the week of like going to bed at nine or whatever so you know come like may when you're like constantly waking up early to train it's a little it's easier to go i'm asleep at nine that's no problem but like this time of year can be a little bit harder um Mm -hmm. but even then like on average i'm still sleeping probably more than eight hours a night so it's yeah it's it's not too big of a deal you just gotta make sure you're in bed at a reasonable hour and and in terms of like your stomach and digestion, um, you know, when you're riding a lot, your digestion is s- theoretically slowed down a lot because like certain parts of your digestion kind of start to shut off at different mm-hmm. zones, usually, usually like over zone two. And you're having to consume, you know, seven to 8,000 calories. Like how is your stomach like in good shape? Do you feel good usually every day? Like you don't have like stomach yeah. aches or anything like that? Yeah. yeah, no, I think it's, it just takes time to train the gut, you know, like on the bike, uh, keep it pretty simple. It's like gels, bars, um, you know, sometimes I'll have like rice cakes or whatever. And then like never mm-hmm. second drink mix. So like, I keep it pretty basic on the bike training. And then, you know, when I'm off the bike, I try and eat like very well, like to have, you know, like plenty of salad and greens and fiber and stuff to like try and offset all the the sugar that gets dumped in the system mm-hmm. during the week uh, mm-hmm. or during the day mm-hmm. when we're training. So I think it's just uh, mm-hmm. that all that sugar and stuff just gets burned, but I think it's still good to have like, you know, you have stuff to eat really well, plenty of fiber and fat and other stuff to like move through and keep your body like on a good, good program and make sure you're getting all the vitamins and minerals you need. So, cause if you just, mm-hmm. you know, eat carbs all day on the bike and you come home and like just eat white rice, like it's eventually that's going to catch up to you. So, I think uh, mm-hmm. kind of having a nice, well-rounded diet is is pretty key. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, it's kind of funny. I've I've always been kind of an anti-dessert person, um, and my excuse, at least since like I don't know, two thousand five, has always been, well, I'm out there eating sugar all day on the bike and drinking my like you know sugary right. water. By the time I get home, I I don't want anything. You just burned sweet. on it. Yeah, yeah, I'm just like, I don't want that feeling in my mouth. I don't want sweetness in my mouth. All mm-hmm. I want is like fat, salt, maybe some spicy food. Um, yeah, and then, exactly. you know, it's, you get palate fatigue for sure. <laughs> yeah, for sure. 
especially back in the day when I was actually like making chocolate and tasting it all day. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah. Just... So you seem pretty stoked on, on, on the never second, I guess they're like gels and, uh, and mixes. Mm-hmm. Um, what is it about never second that is different or that, that you like? Yeah. You know, like I, uh, Bill from never second reached out to me a couple of years back and, you know, I was just, was trying to figure out what I wanted to do for nutrition. It was trying a bunch of different products and, you know, I gave never second, like tested it for a few months and like, I found that it just was super easy to digest. I never had any like issues with like in the drink mix is like, you know, they have the C90 and C30. So C90 is 90 grams of carbs. C30 is 30. Mm-hmm. It's nice that everything is like the, the gels are also 30 grams. The bars are 30 grams. Like everything's in increments of 30. So it's really easy to mm-hmm. calculate what you need. Um, and the C30 is designed so you can like use three scoops of it, triple it. So then you have C90 essentially, but with more sodium. Mm-hmm. So that's like a nice hack when it's a bit warmer out. And, you know, the bars are like engineered to have very low fiber. Like they're like a kind of a date based kind of bar. So there's like, they digest super easy. They taste good. They fit well in the pockets. So that's kind of a nice, nice system of products. Mm-hmm. And they just like, don't overcomplicate things. There's not like a ton different, like colors and flavors or whatever they just have like a few flavors of gels they have some drink mixes and it just like nice simple like two to one ratio of like glucose to fructose and it just sits really well in the stomach and i just like their kind of philosophy behind it like they're not trying to like do anything crazy that's like fringe it just like it they just have good products and they work you know so it's mm-hmm. uh mm-hmm. yeah they're a cool brand i've been thinking a lot about sugar lately just um because i've never stops to really think about it and in terms of like the different types like you have you're mentioning fructose glucose and even sucrose which is like cane cane sugar which is like mm-hmm. i find i'm actually finding cane sugar really interesting because it's like it's a two molecule equal parts glucose to fructose and yeah, i, I think that's different. so cool that yeah. it's like it's like yeah yeah I've, I've just had this thought recently about you know the type of sugar you're consuming on different types of rides. So let's say it's like a zone one and two ride versus a race where you might be in three, four or five, et cetera. So I've actually been trying to just ride with pure fructose lately, <laughs> which I haven't seen really on the market as a product, but I wanted to try it just to see if in the, in like on low zone rides, my stomach could handle it without like getting like upset stomach. So far it's actually working. Okay. I mean, it's a little sweet cause it's actually naturally, um, tastes sweeter i think it tastes like 70 percent right. sweeter than cane sugar but it's kind of inter- interesting thought and I, I like to see that that never second did put out a product that was like considering like formulated ratio of basically fructose to mm-hmm. glucose and for everyone out there who doesn't know fructose is like the main sugar produced by natural like fruits and i think even honey which can be an issue in, in, in higher doses because it doesn't digest well in those higher yeah, zones, like um, higher chain molecule or something, right? Like there's more. Yeah, it's like harder to break down. To yeah, and actually, um, it it gets processed through like a different kind of pathway in your like um, digestion. Um, so glucose will go straight into your bloodstream, basically, but um, fructose has to be processed by your liver, which I thought was pretty interesting. And I think it sometimes goes straight to like this could be wrong, but I think sometimes it goes straight to glycogen. Um, sometimes or sometimes goes to glucose after it's processed by the liver Mm -hmm. 
I don't know. I find that stuff really interesting. And I think um, what they've done is pretty awesome. I've never used it, but I like their, <laughs> I like what they're doing. <laughs> yeah. You have to give it a go. Yeah. It's good stuff. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And are you consuming like the same types of like the same never second products, like in training versus racing? Yeah. I mean, I think I do eat a lot more of the bars training. I don't really use mm-hmm. the bars racing often here and there. I'll bring like, you know, for unbound or a long, long race, I'll bring like maybe one or two with mm-hmm. me just to like, put a little bit of solid food in the stomach. I think it's kind of nice to have something in there, like digesting kind of slower than just a gel. Um, but for the most part, like I find that the races are slightly too intense for me to be consuming the bars. Uh, so it's, yeah, mostly just gels uh, and drink mix, but yeah, it's, it's mm-hmm. the same, same training. I do like training times. I'll use like a lighter drink mix. Uh, like I won't mix it quite as heavy. So I'll use like maybe 60 mm-hmm. grams of carbs in the bottle instead of 90 or whatever, like the racing, it's nice to have like the majority of the carbs in the drink just because it's easier. You don't have to eat as much. Um, the training, sometimes it's like you want to lean it out a little, maybe you want to eat a little more or whatever else. Maybe the ride isn't quite as intense. You just don't need as many carbs. But yeah, so it's, uh, oh, uh, same products. I really don't like, I don't like only race with gels or whatever. It's nice to like keep your body used to what you race with. So not, not to be like changing too much. Sort of changing subjects here. Um... So in like F1 racing, I've, I watched the show on Netflix. I think everyone did. There's this clear message of like, it takes a team to, to come around a particular you know, athlete to, to help them kind of succeed, uh, especially F1, obviously, because they've got a car and all the technology uh-huh. and whatever. But right. even in like the Lance Armstrong days, um, I remember when we were, or when I was at Bella News, um, we were in a piece about Lance's entourage is what we called it on like mm-hmm. all the people kind of around him sort of supporting him in his pursuit as a, you know, professional cyclist. So who's, who's your entourage and, and how do they all help you? Yeah. I mean, it's definitely quite a, you know, it takes, takes quite a crew. You know, like we have like the, the people you like see day to day, I guess, you know, like Myron, uh, is a big part of what I do. I mean, he's, he lives here in Tucson too, which is, uh, pretty key. Um, so we're always like tinkering with setups and, you know, experimenting with different, you know, chain rings, tires, like he's always, we're always like playing with bikes. And then he's also, you know, he was Todd Wells mechanic for a long time. So he's like, in terms of like strategy or like, if all times I'll be like, Oh, maybe we should run this tire. He's like, no, that's stupid. Don't do that. It's too light. Like you'll flat or whatever. So I think he's just got a lot of good insight that way. Mm-hmm. And then we also have, uh, you know, team managers. So I have Jordan and Sam, uh, Sam is at most of the events and he is relatively new to the race world, but he, you know, plays a pretty, plays a pretty key role in terms of just like, he's always like stoked, you know, just always has a good vibe and like he's down to help cook mm-hmm. or pick up groceries and just like, uh, fun to be around. He helps in the feed zone. So it's like, oh, that's quite important. Um, you know, then the team we have, you know, Lexus and Tobin, Tobin to me is like a pretty key teammate, like having someone to help with, you know, like out there on course, uh, as well as like, we'll run over tactics and, you know, maybe we'll play with different lines or setups. Cause we have like, similar styles on the bike we both come from like a mountain bike background but tobin has raced a bunch more road and a bunch of cross so he's kind of got some little different eye on things and be like oh like this is like like to finish this race like this is like how i would how i would try and win the race and i have like my way so sometimes we like you know 
have like different visions and we'll kind of settle on mm-hmm. the best way to like execute the finish the last UK or whatever. So yeah, that's, uh, you know, the people you see. Then of course, you know, there's Sophia here at home, which keep me like, keeps me sane. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. And then, um, you know, my parents. So it's, and then there's, you know, various others who are always like on, on the team, but yeah, maybe they're like less involved. But yeah, I mean, it takes, I mean, it definitely takes a takes a village, as they say. So yeah, and 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 Jim Miller, of course, right? <laughs> yeah, of course, my coach. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the mad scientist with all the training, you know. So like Jim is yeah. uh, one of the big unsung heroes. So yeah, and I I wanted you to kind of go through that because I would want like any younger listeners to to understand that to be successful in kind of no matter what you're doing, whether it's a professional cyclist or anything you're trying to pursue, you really do need a support network to help you kind of work through any issues that you're having or, or help give advice. One thing you could, you could call it would be like a personal board of directors to just kind of guide you and, and, and help you where in, in areas that you might not be an expert at. This is sort of a random anecdote, but 2008, I think, uh, I was just coming off of, of being like a sprinter at the University of Colorado for uh, just running, you know, not like cycling, sprinting. And I was getting into uh, bike racing and this uh, local cyclist in Boulder kind of identified me. He was like, hey, you should, you know, go. I'm going to connect you with Jim Miller to see if you'd be good on the velodrome, like on the track yeah. for, you know, for like the sprinting events. And we did connect like way back then. And he's like, yeah, man, I'll, I'll help you out. Let's see if you've got like Watts and, you know, if we can develop you on the track. And it never happened because I just, I didn't have a ride to get to Colorado Springs and it just never kind of came together. And I realized kind of a missing component for me back then was this just someone to help just make that happen. That makes sense. Like, mm-hmm. but, uh, yeah, so I'm just the, just the little things, you know? So mm-hmm. yeah, a ride. Those things, just uh, a ride. <laughs> yeah yeah those things add up and yeah jim is you know he's been doing it a long time he right you know like coaching the track he's got like so much insight and like kind of a different the road and the track i guess into bike racing so like having him look mm-hmm. at gravel races and you know mountain bike races mm-hmm. like he's kind of he's got a different eye of like okay here's how i would like you know win this race or attack here and like sometimes we'll train do training like do workouts that he does on the track and so he's definitely got like a valuable insight into into what we do so he brings like another kind of another layer that i think you know a lot of people might miss which is uh Mm -hmm. pretty cool and so this is kind of another question for younger riders who are uh, trying to make something of themselves so what's the like what's kind of your business model and I, i mean that as in in the sense of like how you've been able to make this sport kind of work for you i mean obviously you've been tremendously successful you've been the best at, at what you do so I, I think you've had a lot of really good opportunities with sponsors and and all that but what does the like sponsorship and just sort of general income model look like for younger racers who are trying to get into this yeah it's man it's a bit a little bit tricky uh in some ways you know like now it's so like social media plays such a big role in like sponsorship and support um, so you definitely have to learn how to like find that balance for you and know, like find the style that works, you know, um, like for me, like for so long, I was like really just a bike racer 
that was like all I wanted to do. I didn't want to be like an influencer or like, uh, you know, like market myself that way. And it just slowly, I guess I found a way that works for me in a way that I, I enjoy using social media. Um, so I still like think of myself as, you know, primarily an athlete and a bike racer first and social media is a way to like, I like to think of it as a way to like help inspire people to like also push themselves and whatever they're doing and like kind of give them like, you know, more of like a real insight into what I do. Like I'm not like, I don't like try and make anything. I so there's nothing on there like fake, right? Like everything's just real. It's just like day in the life training, racing and you know, the companies that support me, like all of them, like I'm genuinely stoked on. Like I don't work with any partners that like are, I don't think are like, integral part of what i do or don't like mesh in some way or another we all like we all see that have the same vision and you know they don't like expect me to have like that like influencer type post um i just like kind of make things authentic and you know like i like use this like never go talk about never second like for me it's just like i think it's genuinely some of the best product i had used and like they seem like a really cool brand and like they're kind of like the way they approached it like seemed to fit with my you know, my vision. So I think, I guess to answer your question, it's like, you just need to find a, like a way that works for you and find the balance of like, of like racing versus social media. Or if you like want to be an influencer, you have to go that route, you know, like there's like kind of ways you can go in this sport. Uh, but I think, you know, you just got to find the way that works for you and you can't like fake it. Cause I think people will find, you know, they always, they always, they always know, you know, like, I think, you know, when someone on social media isn't the actual, isn't the real person that they, they are, I guess, if that makes sense. So I think it's just important to like, in a way, be yourself. And, you know, like, I think people will appreciate that. They always appreciate the honesty, you know? So it's just, uh, yeah, a bit tricky, but you know, I'm still learning how to, you know, sometimes I still struggle how to make reels. You know, that's not like, something i'm good at i'll sit there battling for an hour to make a reel and so it feels like god oh, just let me help you you know so she'll like come and help yeah. me make this reel that yeah. like she'll do it in like a, a few minutes whereas i've sat there for an hour trying to like drop the clips and do it so i'm just not like very good at that stuff so it's always uh, mm-hmm. a bit of a learning curve in a way i'm a little bit more old school with it you know like i'm just kind of throw up a post and uh here's what we're doing and what we're talking about and <laughs> what it is so yeah and, and in terms of like your uh, from bike racing directly, your your sources of income would be sponsorship and race winnings. Is is that basically it in terms of like from you know bike racing specifically? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't have like I don't have a YouTube channel or anything like that. You know, um, it's purely mm-hmm. just like sponsors, uh, bonuses, prize money, that kind of stuff. You know, pretty mm-hmm. like standard deals i guess per se in the sports world like i don't have like a i'm not making money off instagram exactly or anything yeah, like that yeah so, mm-hmm. yeah and maybe not for yourself but let's say the the other the riders who aren't quite as successful as you do you think they're earning like a uh, livable income from sponsorship at the moment oh for sure yeah i mean i oh, think yeah? okay most of, yeah like most of the guys racing you know like most of the guys in the grand prix have found mm-hmm. like a way to make it work uh, you know, whether they have YouTube mm. channels or, uh, you know, whatever, I think it's, which is pretty cool. Like you, you don't have to mm-hmm. like be just a straight, like a straight, like straight cut bike racer, I guess, like myself in order mm-hmm. to make it work. Mm-hmm. You can have YouTube channels, you can do like 
you know, influencer stuff. Like I, I think I respect, respect the hustle one way or another. They're like finding a way to, to like, in a way live their mm-hmm. dream and, you know, live that pro life without, you know, maybe they don't mm-hmm. quite have like the engine to only be a bike racer, but they found their, their niche to like, to make it happen, which I think is super cool. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like a nice thing about today's age is like, there's like, you know, more than one way to skin a cat. And so it's, mm-hmm. it's pretty neat, you know, and I think it's, uh, it's it, a lot of guys get creative. Mm-hmm. So. It's hard to imagine you spending a lot of time on, um, producing reels and stuff at, during like a 30 hour training week with weights, with, you know, uh, yeah. yoga or stretching. Like, I think the, the more kind of dedicated you are to winning races, I think that stuff starts to get pretty uh tough or even in the way you know yeah you just gotta find you know like i said it's all about like balance like finding the right amount to like Mm -hmm. still uh Mm -hmm. you know stay active on social media and like have it be Mm because it is a part you know like all Mm -hmm. people appreciate insights to like kind of keep everyone up to date sometimes i'll be like oh i haven't Mm -hmm. like posted anything in a minute gotta like figure out see what's going on and yeah 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 all right moving on um Let's talk about music for a second. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you seem pretty passionate about uh, heavy metal these days. Um, I'm just going to call it heavy metal. I know that there's a broad range of genres um, within endless. heavy metal. Uh, endless. Yeah. yeah. Have you always listened to this type of music or is this in the last, you know, maybe decade or so? Yeah, it's funny. It's kind of been like, uh, for me, it was like a slow, like, transition into like realizing how much i loved it i guess you know like mm-hmm. for a long time i just listened to like you know blink one a2 and like kind of your mellow like pop punk kind of kind of tunes and mm-hmm. you know then i like discovered you know for example like a day to remember is like slightly heavier than blink one a2 and then you know then you like listen to stuff that's like similar to them that might be a touch heavier and then you just keep like going down the the spotify rabbit hole as i call it and just like I think I didn't realize how much I like really love metal and I love the variety in it, you know, like mm-hmm. there's like, you know, your super heavy, slow stuff that I find like almost like, I don't know, it's almost relaxing in a way that like, mm-hmm. you know, Sophia's like, you're crazy. Like you can't just sit there and listen to metal at night and like think it's actually relaxing, but you know, like <laughs> there's so many different genres of it. And I think it's a cool, uh, for me, it's a nice, like another, like, outlet from bike racing it's a whole nother like kind of world that like i find like super interesting and there's so many like it's like uh they're similar in a way too like i think like the the music grind as an artist is like seems pretty gnarly you know like trying to find a way to make it happen so i kind of respect like their like that hustle and their their drive to like do what they love and you know make money doing it so i think it's that's also kind of cool like i've learned to appreciate that more the last few years i guess you know that's like and especially you know how especially drummer like the drummers of these bands as well like mm-hmm. and even maybe the guitarists as well like there's a serious element of athleticism and skill and even you know endurance like to to play a long show or even just a, a day of practice like the speed that they're, that they're playing these days is insane you know like oh yeah and like, the um, energy and they're like, full a live on show is yeah is crazy you know mhm I mean, would you say that yeah. energy like matches the way you feel, let's say, at, you know, any given race? I think so. I think it's the same 
probably a similar feeling to them. Like, you know, racing at the front of a bike race for me is probably the feeling they get when they're on stage, like shredding away. Mm -hmm. So I think it's, uh, mm -hmm. I don't know, kind of, in a way it's a similar, similar, I mean, completely different lifestyle, whatnot, but similar in the way that they just like, they're just doing it, you know? And, uh, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it also like plays a big role in like my training and racing. Like I'll have like, you know, playlists for different kind of workouts and, you know, sometimes I'll start off in one kind of genre like I might start off the day listening to Blink One A Two, and then like once the work gets hard, like all right, now we're like, you know, we're playing some knocked loose, or like I, I need to get, I need to get yelled at now, you know? Yeah, uh, yeah. So it's, uh, yeah, it's funny how how that kind of works. I just you know, like now I'm in the mood to listen to this, and you know, we go through have, like different phases of listening to hardcore one day, and then maybe then a week later I'm listening to like some Norwegian death metal, you know? Like there's, mm -hmm, there's just mm -hmm. uh, varies so much. I mean, you you get it. So you kind of know yeah, that, yeah. And, how, how it fits um, into your life. <laughs> yeah. And I find that I need to be a little careful about what I'm listening to on, on any given ride. Like if it, if it really is a recovery day, I can't listen to something that's super heavy because I'll, I'll just want to ride harder, you know? Right. Yeah. Um, you gotta like kind of know what's going to fit what workout. You yeah. Know? Or another thing I've encountered is like on, let's just say it's a long ride and I'm not thinking about pacing or zones. I found that sometimes I'll ride a little too hard um, on certain climbs, and then I get like further into the ride, and I'm like, "Oh man, I'm I'm spent. <laughs> like, what was I doing yeah. earlier? Yeah, shouldn't have put on that playlist. climb. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then I finally did my first uh, like ramp test that I've ever done, and I didn't really think about what how to like get psyched up for it in advance, but um, mm -hmm. what I ended up doing, I like I put on this like live show of one of my favorite bands. And it's like, it's a particularly gnarly and intense show with like a full symphony. Yeah. And it's just like, it's so epic. It's not just that it's heavy. It's so epic and intense and there's so much energy. Um, mm -hmm. And I don't know, I found myself pushing really hard, like to a, to a level I, I don't think I could have pushed just purely like, I don't know, looking at a Zwift screen, you know? <laughs> oh, for sure. Um, yeah, I think it helps you like push through that like another level sometimes you know especially like for yeah. vo2 i'll have like certain like has supposed to be a certain pace of metal like, kind of faster like heavier so there's always like it has to fit the the genre has to fit the workout you know maybe the specific artists right, even right. so mm -hmm, yeah mm -hmm. and you and you find mm -hmm. that it, it kind of helps you push through on a particularly hard let's say vo2 interval workout oh for sure sometimes i'll you know yeah. like i'll have like a certain playlist going and like I'll get to the end of a end of a workout and be like, oh, I need to like click back a few songs and like re start start over because like that song hit so good in that moment that you have to. I think mm -hmm. I was like, I'm gonna finish this like VO2 interval. I need to, to like I need this song to come out at this this moment, you know. Uh, so it's funny how you can kind of make it make it work with the training. And I have like certain playlists that I'll I'll put on for like and a threshold workout and it, like kind of like it'll like go like the play as the playlist goes. It like kind of matches the the feelings i guess throughout the workout and that's interesting because you're kind of like hacking your own mind a little bit with like a formula that you For know sure. works you know on a on a big training day or, or uh, let's say it's an important race you know how much of your performance is rooted in your mental kind of attitude or, or how you're feeling that day versus just purely your physical you know abilities man i don't know that's that's tough i think I think the mind is like a pretty powerful tool. You know, like some days 
racing, you can know you can just do so much more than you could training. And I think it's, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know if there's like a specific answer to that, like in terms of like a number, I guess it's really hard to quantify, but I do think sometimes mm-hmm. like, uh, you have to be able to like turn on that mode of like, I'm just going to suffer like a dog today and like get it done. Uh, and there's some days when you're racing that like near the end of the season, it's hard to like turn on that mode. And sometimes mm-hmm. I like, oh, like, I don't know if like I can suffer anymore. You know, you kind of have to like trick your trick yourself into like being able to suffer again. Cause I think for me, like you can only do that. You can only dig that deep so many times. Uh, after that you end mm-hmm. up like having to like trick yourself into doing it other ways. Um, especially with how like long and intense our races are now, you know, like sometimes gravel races, like you're I mean, unbound even is like kind of flat out from start to finish, you know, like we hit the mud this year, at like mile 11. And then it was like game on for another 10 hours. So you really have to be like focused and kind of ready, ready for whatever and prepare to kind of just go through it for a few hours. Cause it's not always you're not always going to be the strongest in the group or you might be suffering more than someone else, but eventually like you're going to come good and they're going to start to hurt or whatever. So I think it's just a matter of like, uh, you know, in a way it's, it's only temporary <laughs> and just keep pushing. So when you say so. trick yourself into getting into that, that mode that you need to be in to, to suffer, like what kind of tricks do you use? <laughs> Man, honestly, that's, <laughs> do you think about is there something you think about you know is there other like is there like a go-to thought that you you have that you can use sometimes or like i guess i'm just wondering how you do it i don't know like stop thinking so much sometimes i end up just overthinking things out there you know and Mm -hmm. i'm trying to race too much i end up having to race too much like uh too planned and that doesn't work for me i just kind of have to just do it like if i you know if i tell myself like you should go like i just need to go instead of like, Oh, I have to go at this mile marker. If so-and-so attacks, I'm going to attack. Like, I think I I can't get too caught up in like the race dynamics. I just need to like trust myself and just, just send it when I feel like I need to. I've kind of learned that the last few years of just like trusting myself. Um, sometimes I like, sometimes you're, you're your own worst enemy, you know? So you can't, uh, can't overthink things. At least I can't. Sometimes simple, simple is better. Yeah. And I think, um, the kind of like deeper level of that is it's, it's a form of confidence, you know, to, to trust yourself. So I just kind of want to hear a little bit about like how your confidence has evolved over, over time. Cause like in high school, you were a really strong cyclist, probably beating everybody, even including older people. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, junior national champion, U23 national champion. And then you went into, you know, proper world cup mountain bike racing at the elite level and that you know that looked hard and that looked brutal and then you moved yeah. on from that and got into gravel and have started just winning everything and not just gravel but you know the, the american mountain bike racing um so just how how is your your confidence kind of how's your confidence kind of changed during that time period yeah i mean there was definitely a few years when i was racing world cups that i I was almost, I was like, I don't even know if I can do this anymore. You know, like I was so sick of just like getting my teeth kicked in week after week. And then you'd have like one like decent result and you'd be like, ah, maybe we can do this. And you just kept kind of, I just kind of kept getting like lured in to this like never ending cycle. You know, I'd pop off a result over here and 
then I'd go and have like a good result over there and then it wouldn't correlate the next weekend. And like, I don't know, I just was having a hard time like putting the pieces together at the World Cups. And I don't know, those races are just so hard. You know, they're so unique, like in the way that like they're really intense. There's so many guys that are so good and it's just, uh, it's a hard nut to crack. And I don't know, like, if have, how much of it was like a, like a physical thing versus a mental thing. Cause a lot of those at the same athletes, like I could beat them like one-on-one and of course are in a race that like, there wasn't all of us starting together. Um, so it's, yeah, I don't know. Honestly, it was a bit, I don't really ever know like quite how to crack that. I think I'm a better bike racer now. Like I think I've gained a lot more confidence in racing gravel and, um, also just a lot stronger. Like I'm just fitter than I was, you know, five years ago. And then for me, like, you know, back in 2021, when I didn't make the Olympic team, like that was like the big goal that year was to go to the Olympics, you know, and I was like dead set on that happening and, you know, had some great races over here preparing and then went over to Europe and just blew it. I just didn't happen, just didn't put it together. And, and after that, you know, I finished that race and really, like, well, I'm not going to the Olympics, so got to find something else to do. And I guess I kind of raced like, out of i don't know i just feel like i was racing out of spite i guess the rest of the season like i was just kind of pissed and just found i guess i may have realized i can race harder than i thought i could so i don't know that's made part of it you know like i'm just gonna go out here and just try and win every race the rest of the year and like <laughs> that was kind of what i did and then it turns out i actually really enjoyed it like i really enjoy the longer stuff and i think gravel racing to me is i i really have a lot of fun doing it and i think i'm my engine's a bit better suited towards it too like i think you know the world cup racing is just a little bit short and a little bit intense sometimes for me like i'm really good at riding at a like quite high intense level but like that world cup when you're pushing like just those constant five six hundred watt efforts like isn't quite my thing um unless the race is really long and eventually people start to crack and i can just continue on my like slightly less good punchiness yeah i don't know it's probably a combination of all those things but i do like gravel racing for me is like kind of what i wish mountain bike racing always was like i appreciate the tactics involved too and the length like i really like the long bike race like there's so much more just more dynamic you know whereas xco is just violence you just go out and pretty much go as hard as you can the whole time and yeah i mean there's not like there's a little bit of tactics but there's not a ton you know like if you're racing at the very front there is tactics but they're still very like marginal compared to like a gravel or a road race and i think i appreciate that side of it like that mental game of like when to attack and how to sit in and like when to when to go and to not so i think to me i have a bit more fun racing gravel which is why i'm probably better at it because i enjoy it a bit more i still enjoy xeo like occasionally last year i went and did you know the soldier hollow race and had a good time there and like still love racing mountain bikes cape epic but cape epic race is more like gravel racing it's longer days you know three to five hours and they're full gas the whole day and you just end up like kind of surviving so it's that kind of racing definitely suits me better and and the longer races are more like are more like the training we do you know it's like in the old days yeah we used i mean at least for me in boulder like all of our riding was basically gravel rides back, you know, in the day on 23 millimeter yeah. tires. Um, and those are the best rides. Cause it's just, it's pretty, it's fun. Um, you're on all great roads, uh, mountain biking, like, you know, I love just pure single track and, and ride like, like mm-hmm. riding in park city. 
And so it's like when there's races that are kind of built around that type of riding, like that's the most fun riding in a way. And that's kind of what gravel racing and some of these longer mountain bike races really is. It's, it's our favorite type of riding, you know? Um, You actually to go somewhere and see something instead of just racing around mm -hmm. a three mile long circuit, you know? So I think that's part of it Mm -hmm. too. It's like, you get to actually like see the area you're in and, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, experience more of it. Like world championships in Italy last year, like we were racing all over that little region we were in and saw like a bunch of cool, like racing through vineyards and like different parks and Mm -hmm. some cool road climbs. Mm -hmm. And I think I, I appreciate that. That's like the kind of ride. Yeah. That's the kind of ride I would put together like in the winter in Boulder or something like on cyclocross bikes of just like, okay, let's go this random hill and this, you know, this driveway and this, you know, section. That's exactly what it is. You Um, know, I love that idea of like a super cross, like a longer cyclocross race, um, which that doesn't, as far as I know, it doesn't quite exist except for maybe like Vermont Overland. I don't think you've done that one, but, um, they have these like class four sections in between the gravel roads that are like super gnarly, like not fun on a mountain bike, even like Um, Belgian wildfire, Arizona is kind of like that in uh, a way, like you're racing on proper single track and it's like Mm kind of sick because there's like some pavement Mm -hmm. and there's some gravel, but there's also like probably 30 miles of like actual single track. So it's, Mm-hmm. like that kind of racing is kind of fun like it's so different there's no perfect bike there's no perfect tire it just like everyone mm-hmm. you're compromised at some point in one way or another which i think is really cool mm-hmm. so. so anyway i kind of want to just finish this idea on on like confidence and psychology a little bit because i feel like you're in kind of a you're in a winning streak right now um you've got to be like feeling good about that and you know i i really think the mind is insanely powerful in terms of affecting the physical body. I was listening to like some podcast recently about how given placebos, like with mosquito bites, you could have a different result in terms of whether they swell or whether, whether they itch, if they told you that this like, you know, fake placebo worked. And, um, huh. and it's just crazy to think that like you can have a physical change right to your body just based on, on right. what you're thinking. And there's, there's a, you know, a thousand examples of that. And and I just feel like if you could sort of do that in reverse, let's say other riders out there that might not be as confident as you, as you, because they haven't won, you know, maybe anything yet, like to, to think confidently and to, to like tell your body, like you are capable of this, I think can be really kind of empowering physically for, um, you know, being a better cyclist. Um, mm-hmm. Do you think there's any, anything to that? <laughs> yeah no for sure i think a lot of it i mean you can definitely you know kind of said you can like tell you like just tell yourself to do it and trick yourself into thinking you can do it sometimes is the move you know and you might be like suffering on the back of this group and like cramping or whatever and you just like well i think i can do it like i don't really have a choice like if i want to like finish on the podium or whatever like this is what i have to do um mm-hmm. so you just have to kind of believe yourself that you can do it. And worst case, you know, you don't like you actually, your body actually like will fall apart. <laughs> you might, you won't, maybe yeah, you won't. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. Like you kind of have to like risk it sometimes, you know, and like risk, mm-hmm. you know, you have to risk finishing 30th or 20th in order to win sometimes. And I think that's mm-hmm. like a hard thing to swallow. Cause sometimes you end up getting that like, well, I could finish like sixth or seventh or whatever. And I think, uh, 
you know, sometimes you just got to kind of send it and see what happens. So it's, yeah, a bit tricky. You got and what works for me isn't going to work for someone else, you know, like you have to like find the strategy that works for you in terms of like how to like get yourself to do something you don't want to do, you know? And obviously like, yeah, your mind isn't so powerful that it can take a untrained athlete and do what you do. Right. <laughs> you've got, it's you've, like, you've sure, got to you can go busy. suffer like a dog, but you're still not going to be able to do it quick. Yeah. If you're not, if you're not training, like it all has right. to be yeah. like cumulative, yeah. you know? Yeah. Yeah. Last kind of big question of today. What race would you say you're most proud of at this point? Yeah, that's hard to say. There's a few. I think the big, a few, a big one for me was only uh, one. <laughs> probably, you know, that Leadville record. Uh, for me, that was like kind of the biggest goal last season was to get that Leadville course record. And it was like, I guess, you know, it's something I'd always thought about. Like I thought it was just like, because Leadville is one of those races that, you know, like Lance raced it and you had like all these guys from Europe racing and Todd Wells and like all these guys that like I kind of idolized back when I was young. And, and then, you know, I did Leadville for the first time a few years back and like, wasn't all that far off, you know, I was like a six thirteen or whatever time I finished, you know, and then two years ago I was like just over six hours. And then basically after that, I was like, kind of made it like my mission to go, to get the record and like, there was so much that went into that um in terms of like preparation training the bike like the amount of time that like you know jim and i spent like analyzing the files and like trying to figure out just the the pacing for it um you know jonathan lee from trainer road is also like a big part in that where like he can help me come up with a pacing plan that i have my top two for different checkpoints you know and then you know myron came to, to heber and we like tested all sorts of different bikes and tires and then we went to Leadville and tested them again there. So I think to be able to like put that ride together and actually do it after like all that preparation was just felt really good. Like it was there was like so much behind it that if I didn't get it I would have been really, really bummed. You know? I didn't want to just like sneak under that six hours. I wanted to like make it my record and not be like, oh it was like five I got the record by like thirty seconds. Like I wanted to to really own it you know and like going into it i kind of had the pacing plan of like if i ride this fast i'll get the record by 10 minutes and either i'm gonna do that or i'm gonna just blow up out there and finish wherever i finish so i was kind of on like that that ride or die approach so yeah i think for me that one was a big one you know um gonna be hard to top that i think in terms of like all that went into it you know i mean unbound was big like winning that after finishing second and like coming back and getting it done was, was uh, a good feeling. But I think like taking the course record on Leadville, of course, it's like that race is like so iconic and hopefully a record that stands for at least a little while will be, is pretty cool. You know, like race wins are just that moment. Like once you win a race, like it's cool for a while. And then eventually like it's kind of in the past, you know, but it's done and done and over with, but a record is like something that, will go on as long as said record is like still there <laughs> so uh yeah and so why like why was the the leadville um record like so important to you just because that race is so iconic for american mountain bike racing i think so i mean it's just the iconic 
race uh over here in north mm. it's like probably the biggest mountain bike race in north america and one of the larger races like in the world in terms of like notoriety i guess mm-hmm. and it was also a race that you know it's like in a way it's close to home for me um you know mm-hmm. like colorado's not that far away and like all the heroes you know have come over and raced it you've had like alvin lakata and i like like i think I, I really wanted to like have that record be like oh i wanted it because like i'm an american and i think it's like this is our race like i think we should own this so it was also mm-hmm. that was probably part of it and just like like i said like the personal standpoint of like all the work that went into it and mm-hmm. like being able to execute on on the day even though the conditions like mm-hmm. at first i was like oh shit it's gonna like rain it's gonna be windy and whatever but it ended up like i still just like sent it anyway and you know the the rain actually ended up being a pretty fast day like the dirt was super good and ended up working out you know mm-hmm. and just to do it kind of solo too like i had you know tobin helped me at the start he gave me a good 20 minute push good lead out mm-hmm. uh and then the rest of the race, you know, I was kind of just like on my own flying by the seat of my pants and hoping that the race was going to be quick enough on the way out and that it wasn't going to be slow. And luckily, like the boys were down to push and ride because everyone's there to, to race, you know, and then I was on my own all the way back. So I think, yeah, I guess it's just for me, just like the execution of like after all that, that hard work that went into it, like it just, that's why it, it, uh, it feels good. Yeah, there's nothing better than like putting all these pieces of the puzzle together and having it all mm. come together on that day and, and, and turn out the way you had hoped. It's like a, you know, it's like a space shuttle launch or something, you know, it's like years. Yeah, everything of, has to fall into space, you know, like yeah. fall into place. Yeah. Sorry. Mm. Like, mm. like <laughs> the bike <laughs> has to be perfect. Yeah. Fall into space. Yeah. Yeah. The bike yeah. has to be perfect. Like everything has to work. Like you can't have like, mm. you know, nutrition has to be on, like everything just has to, to go perfect in order to go that fast you know like yeah. the only way i think it's yeah. going to be faster is to have a full squad dedicated to going really fast so mm-hmm. yeah the uh yeah the the astronaut can't have diarrhea on the day <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly yeah and so what did you know getting that record what did that like validate for you personally just as a as a site as a professional cyclist and and where you are in your career and, and success uh yeah i mean i think it in a way it gave me a lot more confidence too like i'm probably capable of more than i thought i was you know like that there's Mm -hmm. still like a lot of meat left on the bone in terms of like my physical potential uh and mental you know like i was like oh like i was able to do like whatever watts per kilo at ten thousand feet elevation so i probably have a lot of a lot of work i can do at sea level in order to get faster so i think there's uh doesn't mean I can like reproduce those numbers at sea level that you can calculate off that, right? Like that's just mm-hmm. not possible for me. But I think there is like still mm-hmm. a lot of potential left, and it gave me confidence that like if I train and like focus on one big event, like it is possible to like make it happen, you know, and kind of mm-hmm. check all the boxes. It just goes to like you know working hard works. So. Mm-hmm. And uh, do you have any, you know, major goals for this season that you're willing to divulge? I mean, you know, more or less the same as last year. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Really, the big one I want to go back and take care of is Gravel Worlds, UCI Gravel Worlds. Uh, mm-hmm. It's in Belgium this year. The course is a little bit flatter, but I still think it's a, you know, pretty good in the end. Not a not a bad course for me. So mm-hmm. still, mm-hmm. hopefully, can try and get her done. Um, and you know, 
uh, Unbound is still a big goal. Definitely want to want to defend that title, you know, as well as Leadville in the Grand Prix overall. So there's a lot of, I don't know, a lot of races and a lot of things I want to do. So it's a matter of like, you know, not, uh, not losing, not losing focus, I guess. And, uh, just trying to check them off mm-hmm. one by one. Awesome. Well, uh, it's been an awesome conversation with you today. And I, I think, um, I think you're ha- going to have another great season. That's my prediction. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. It was, uh, it was a good yeah. one. Fun to chat. Awesome. Well, we'll see you soon. Thanks. Right. We'll see you, man. Thanks for listening today. And thank you, Keegan, for taking the time to be on this show. Next week, we have former pro snowboarder and renowned Norwegian artist, Danny Larson. If you haven't done so already, please follow or subscribe to this show. And if you found listening to this episode worthwhile, please share it. For updates and highlights, you can follow the show on Instagram at 4 Journal. See you next week.